Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased indeed to welcome this week Philip Pullman. The author of the His Dark Materials trilogy has recently returned to that world with a new book, La Belle Sauvage, which is the first volume in a projected new trilogy called The Book of Dust. He's also publishing at the same time a collection of essays called Demon Voices, Essays on Storytelling. Philip, welcome. Can I ask, I mean, sort of almost obvious first question, when was it that you knew that you'd be returning to the world of his dark materials? Well, quite a long time ago, when I had just published the final book in that series, The Amber Spyglass, I thought, well, that's it. Um, I've got Lyra safely to the end of the story. She's on the verge of adolescence. She's going to grow up and uh, have other things happening to her, but I won't know what they are. But then I wrote a little book at the urging of my publisher who wanted to produce a, a map of Oxford, really, a map of Lyra's Oxford. So I wrote a little story to go with that. And I thought I'd throw in various little bits of fake ephemera. I'm a great fan of Martin Parr's book, Boring Postcards. I don't know if you know it. It's an extremely funny book, which consists exactly of that, reproductions of dozens and dozens of very boring postcards. And I thought it would be fun to concoct a boring postcard of Oxford. So we did that. And we, we, we had the great John Lawrence draw a map. And um, among the other bits of fake ephemera was a brochure for a, a Levantine cruise on a ship called the SS Zenobia, which I made up and I made up the itinerary. And on the itinerary, I, I, I penciled in a, a meeting at one point on one particular date. And I thought no more of it. I didn't know what connection it would have with anything at all. It was just a bit of fun. But then I thought, well, you know, there's a meeting been set up here and maybe, well, maybe there's a story in it. So I started thinking about that. And one thing led to another and various other speculations and obsessions came home to roost. And I found myself writing another story about Lyra. The, the first one took her through her sort of 11th, 12th year, that sort of age. But she's she's on the verge of adolescence at the end of his dark materials. She's going to be an adolescent. She's going to grow up. She's going to be an adult. What's going to happen to her? I was intrigued by this and I wanted to see what she'd be like as an adult and what, how, how the adventures that she'd had in his dark materials would affect the later part of her life. So I got more and more intrigued by that. And I started writing oh, about quite a long time ago, actually, about 10 years ago. But then I got distracted by other things and people commissioned me to do various other bits and pieces. So it wasn't until more recently than that that I, I sat down and concentrated on the book, which is just now published, La Belle Sauvage. But this La Belle Sauvage, of course, doesn't have Lara as an adult. It goes the other She's direction. a MacGuffin in this book. Yes, exactly. She's the She's uh, starting MacGuffin, point yes. of the adventure without being active in it. That's right. The baby in the basket. It's a, a sort of odd choice. It strikes me to make, I mean, you've talked about this as not being a prequel or a sequel, but this trilogy as being an equal. My one soundbite, I've got to get it in. Yes. <laughs> well, it's a very good soundbite and quite an intriguing one because it, there's a kind of straddling quality. Is it going to be, I mean, I'm sure it's possible in some way and you, you won't be able to say exactly how, but are there going to be threads in this book that are going to be picked up, as it, I guess, 20 years later in the second two books? Oh, yes. It's one story. It's a new story, a different story, and it's one story. And the um, all sorts of metaphors here. There are threads that are being woven and will be woven further later on. There are seeds being planted here that will germinate in the interval and sprout and live in, in the in the second book, and so on. But it was intriguing to have to have a long story like that to think about, and to set things in place that would only 
come to find their consequences much later. Because 20 years is quite a big interval, quite a long interval. Things change a lot. People change a lot. But I was, um, I was happy to let that happen. And are you intending it to sort of cast in a different light or sort of change the way we read the intervening three books? Well, you use the word intending there. And one of my essays in Demon Voices is about this very business of intention. How much can an author intend? And what does the author's intention matter anyway? The word I prefer to use is not intend, but hope. I hope that certain things will happen when I write a book. I can't I can't say I honestly intend it because although you can intend to rake up the leaves on the lawn and change the oil in your car, you can't intend to write a moving book that will have a lot of people want to read it. You hope for that. You don't intend it. Well, one of the things I meant to move on to, Demon Voice, is you, you talk very interestingly about the narrator as being a separate character. Yeah. Do you think of the narrator, I won't say intend the narrator, do you think of the narrator in this book or this trilogy as being the same narrator as the one in his Dark Materials? I think it's pretty similar. Each of my stories, depending on what kind of story it is, has a different voice, is told in a different voice. I think his Dark Materials is all told in one voice, which is not quite the same as the voice that tells my Victorian thrillers about Sally Lockhart. But I think that his Dark Materials voice is pretty much the same as the voice that tells La Belle Sauvage. As far as I can tell, I think it is. But the, the, the figure of the narrator is one of the, the collection of people who make up the whole book transaction. And it's quite a collection, really. There's the real author, the actual author, who wrote the words down. There's the author who seems to be implied by the book or inferred by the reader, who might be someone else. There's the narrator, the voice that actually tells the story. And then at the other end, there's the real reader, whose name I don't know, might be anyone. Um, the person who actually buys the book or borrows it from the library and sits down and reads it. There's the reader the book seems to expect, which might be a child, it might be a professor of philosophy, but it's what the book expects, not what I you know, intend to have. You can't intend that sort of thing. And so on. And all these, these shadowy characters come together to make the, make the whole reading experience a, a matter of democracy rather than despotism. Writing is despotism. Writing is tyranny. I am the dictator of everything when I write, and there is no gainsaying my word. I am the Stalin of the story. But when the book is published and sold and out there in the world, in the marketplace, the process becomes democratic and all these other voices come into it and have a play. And of course, they're right. Whatever they decide the book means is what it means. Um, I certainly don't want to go about saying, no, you've got that wrong. You, you haven't read that properly at all. Uh, you, this, is, this is what it means, not that. I never say that. Never want to say that. From the point of view purely of the kind of you know, venal world of publishing, it struck a lot of people as quite a strange decision to publish demon voices nearly at the same time mm. as the new edition of his dark materials you know you, I mean, you, there's a danger that one will eclipse the other and so on was that a conscious decision did you think i want these things to be read alongside each other or uh, i don't mind if they are and in a sense they could sort of reinforce each other rather than eclipse each other it, it wasn't so much a decision as a, a matter of publishing happenstance the book demon voices was ready six months ago but I didn't want it published and the publishers didn't want it published before The Book of Dust. And nor did we want to wait a whole year before publishing it when it was already ready. So why not publish them fairly close together and see what happens? Absolutely. Demon Voices, I mean, you say quite early on, you know, I'm not really very good at literary criticism. You know, I'm not. It's, I mean, it's, it seems to me you are very good at literary criticism indeed. But the sort of literary criticism you present here is as per the kind of 
as a magpie or raven on the front. It's one where you're you're reading books for their usefulness. Yeah, I, I'm reading it to see what I can steal. Basically, I'm casing the joint. That's hence the magpie. I think it's a raven, actually. One of those corvids, anyway. Birds, birds that steal things. Jack Dawson. It's your your demon. I think you My said demon, somewhere. Yeah. You know, Milton was a very kind of guiding influence on the last one. There's a sort of Spencer seems to enter yeah. in here. Yeah. Is 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 that something that's that's sort of useful to you all the way through a trilogy to have a kind of model like that? Yes, it is in a way. It's a formal thing. It has to do with the, not exactly the structure, but the form of the thing. Spencer was someone I struggled very hard to read at university. I read English at Oxford, and I never read The Fairy Queen, so I should have done. And I didn't read The Fairy Queen until really quite recently, when it it suddenly occurred to me that this might be useful or helpful, because it's a romance. And I think this book is a romance, where where the previous one was, in formal terms, an epic, really. This one is a romance, I think, like The Fairy Queen. And I was very lucky to find the, the stanza with which I end the novel because I think that's absolutely perfect at that point. Yes, it does come very useful. Yeah. But you actually, on the subject of epic, you've got a line in Demon Voices where you talk about epic and you say mm. epic is less precious than literature but more valuable. <laughs> and I, I puzzled with that. What, that sounds very like literary criticism that? to me. It does, well, it's a bit more swagger than, <laughs> than some. Yeah, what I mean is something I think... Uh, akin to what Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton said, when he meant that literature is a luxury, but fiction is a necessity. You know, there's there's something that speaks to us, speaks to our deepest natures in epic and in myth, probably even more in myth than in epic. Uh, myth is something that is reenacted in every life. For example, the story of Adam and Eve, the coming of ending of innocence and the coming of experience. Or the, um, in Freudian terms, the Oedipus myth is reenacted in everyone's life by means of the Oedipus complex. And if you don't believe that, there are plenty of other myths that we can point to that have a resonance for everybody's life at various points of people's lives. Whereas fiction, literary fiction, doesn't have that same nature. It has a different sort of nature. I mean, just speaking of myth, in La Belle Sauvage, you know, which is a book that sort of divides in two halves. Mm, quite deliberately. And the second half of it, you're in this much more phantasmagorical sort of world and having built the sort of his dark materials world with all sorts of, you know, sort of multiple universes set up and, you know, this kind of Miltonic structure in the background, we're suddenly meeting, you know, these strange little interludes of a kind of fairy, sort of isolated little fairy queen and a kind of garden of forgetting and we yeah. hear of old Father Thames. Very, very Spencery, very fairy queeny. Very Spencery, but it feels like you're suddenly layering in a whole sort of set of other myths and well, myth structures into the, sort of, the world. I sort of am, yes. We'll see the point, we'll see the meaning of these and the point of these, of course, in the later books. But there's a phrase which I deliberately put into this novel towards the end, when one of the Egyptian characters refers to something he calls the secret commonwealth, which I have used as the title of the second book, and which I took from, stole again, from a book entitled The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fauns and Fairies. Strange little book published in about sixteen Britain about sixteen eighty by um, a clergyman called Robert Kirk, and he was writing about folk tales, the stories of fairies and elves and things like that that he he'd come across in his in his line of work and he'd become very interested in and I had been reading a number of folk tales, including of course those of the Brothers Grimm, of which I made a version for Penguin Classics, which I greatly enjoyed doing. But also the tales collected by the great folklorist Catherine Briggs, 
to folk tales from Britain. And I found these increasingly absorbing and increasingly interesting. And, and the world they seemed to, to describe, a world in which it was perfectly natural for there to be a fairy hill that you could be seduced into and not let out for seven years, that sort of thing. I found that very engaging, very, um, very productive, if I can put it like that. There were lots, lots of things I could say about it. And it, I could use that notion of the secret Commonwealth to say a lot of things that I wanted to say about, well, about being a human being. In just the same way as the demon does. The demon I discovered that I was when I was writing the first part of his Dark Materials is a device that lets me say something swiftly and visually about the nature of somebody. But it also lets me make apparent a dimension of ourselves that isn't easily apparent otherwise. It's the difference between having someone there to talk to and the difference for a narrator of having two people there who can talk to each other. And having one person there whose thoughts you have to describe, so you have to go in their heads and come out again and, and, and so on. It's just technically rather easier to have two people talking to each other. Yes, I mean, I'm fascinated by the way in which you, I mean, obviously the multiverse setup allows you to do it in some ways. And this myth, this sort of aggregative number of myths allows you to do it. You lay things over on top of each other. I mean, one of the things that seemed to me, I mean, I guess... At one level, it's a kind of wonderful joke, but you've got the protagonist of this, you know, La Belle Sauvage, is reading a brief history of time. And I find myself wondering, would a brief history of time be a different book in the His Dark Materials universe? That's, that's an interesting question, which Rowan Williams raised in a different way in his review of the book. He asked if, and it wasn't there, it was somewhere else, he raised that question, would, would science have developed the same way would art have developed the same way as science in Lyra's world? And I had to think about that. And the answer I think is probably the most satisfactory one is that if once you've got the scientific method and you start examining the universe, you'll discover more or less the same things wherever you are. Gravity will work in the same way. There will be electrons and neutrons and quarks and so on. And you'll discover those by the means of the scientific method. And you'll learn all about genes and, and all that sort of thing. So science will develop in a pretty broad way, broadly similar way. The arts, however, culture, might well develop differently because art does not develop in the way that science does by building on the mistakes of the previous theories. Art develops in loops, and there's a sense in which no art has ever been, no draftsmanship has ever been better than the draftsmanship that was being practised 30,000 years ago in the caves of Chauvet or Lascaux in France. So art, art and culture on the one hand and science on the other develop in different ways. And I can't for the life of me remember what I started well, we started this question. <laughs> well, it seems it seems apt to the way you go about things. I mean, I'm intrigued again. You're often seen in some quarters as a kind of literary harbinger of the new atheism. You know, this fierce anti-theistic writer. I was never that. Well, I mean, say you describe yourself as superstitious. Yeah, I am. Yes, I no, I was never a harbinger or a, anything else of the new atheism. I think that's a very reductive way of looking at things. This book, if, if it is anything, is an attack on what Blake used to call single vision. Yes, well, Blake is in Demon Voices, a very, very sort of profound... Oh, he's the hero. Team. He's the hero of the story. Yes, that's right. I learned an enormous amount, both as a young reader, as a teenager, and later in life, and I'm still learning a great deal from, from Blake, who saw more and saw deeply and saw more fully, I think, than uh, almost anyone else. You write in a kind of without a single vision, without a kind of realism, narrow sort of thing. I'm quite, I was surprised in one of the early essays in Demon Voices, you say, I've always felt that realism is a higher mode than fantasy, as if you sort of regret the way your muse has tugged you. Is that is that right way to read that? Not regret so much as embarrassment. 
I kind, I'm kind of embarrassed to find myself writing what is obviously fantasy because it's not a terribly respectable thing to do. It belongs, as I say, somewhere else with the fluff under the bed of literature rather than with the, you know, with the proper furniture. But I found it a useful way of saying things that were hard to say in any other way. I think there's only been one work of fantasy, apart from Paradise Lost, which, of course, is a work of fantasy, which has done something interesting, said something interesting about human psychology. And that's a book called A Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay. It's the only good thing he ever wrote, about 1920. And it has its place in, you know, collections of famous science fiction, that sort of thing. He has an extraordinary way of using the apparatus of science fiction to say some very uncomfortable things about human nature. And I thought that was a very interesting thing to do. The apparatus of fantasy is, a, is, a, is a, an extraordinarily wonderful toolbox. And I think it might usefully be wielded by writers in more interesting ways than it has been traditionally. I don't think Tolkien, for example, is, says anything interesting about human beings at all. Would you say Blake could surely fall under... In, by some standards, the sort of fantasy thing. I mean, I'm thinking of, sort of Urias and all the Marriage of Heaven and Hell have very strong kind of fantasy. Yes, elements. they do. And he was he was doing that. Yes, you're quite right. But his long poems like Jerusalem and Milton and so on are so difficult, resistant to well, resistant to ca <laughs> casual readings. A bit like that. That it's you, you have to you have to work a bit at William Blake. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's sort of really interesting in Demon Voices, I think, is where you talk about technique and. Again and again, you because they're you know a lot of them are sort of essays and lectures that you've touching on adjacent subjects. You talk about being interested really in in how filmmakers do it often. How and yeah. you say the sort of fundamental question is where you put the camera. Yes, very good question. That David Mamet asks that in a book that he wrote about the techniques of film and and, and stage and so on. He says there are two questions actually the director needs to ask: What do I tell the actors, and where do I put the camera? And he suggests that those are pretty fundamental questions. And of course, he's absolutely right. When you're writing a novel, you don't have to worry about the actors, but you do have to worry about the camera question. How close am I going to go? Am I going to look into her mind? If I look into her mind, can I also look into his mind? Or should I just look at them all from outside? Should I not say anything about their minds at all? What am I allowed to see? That's the question you have to solve afresh with every story. And it is, it is the fundamental one, really. How close are you going to go? What's your perspective? Where are you? Where are you situ Where is the eye situated that sees this, sees these events, and tells this story? Well, you're quite a strong advocate for the, if you like, enhanced toolkit you get with a third person or free and direct yeah. narration, and yet we are absolutely surrounded by present tense first person narration. Can't bear it. Why do you think that is? Why, where's it all coming from? It's an odd thing. I, I I was talking to someone about this about 10 years ago in America, and, and she said that she knew someone or she, who, her husband or someone who refused to read any book that was not written in the first person on the present tense because then he knew where he was and he knew who was telling the story and he was sort of safe. But he didn't like third-person narration at all. I don't know where it comes from. It's a, I suppose it's a sort of uncertainty. I don't know where it comes from. I much prefer to read books that are written in the past tense. I find reading books in the present tense very difficult. And I resist it. Sometimes you do, and sometimes they turn out to be very good. But on the whole, I'd rather not. And I certainly wouldn't want to write in the present tense. Writing in the third person gives you a freedom, I think, that you haven't got otherwise. If you write as one person, you've got difficulties of all sorts. In the first person, I mean, you've got all sorts of difficulties. You have to arrange for your narrator to know the things you want the reader to know, or you have to make them unreliable in such a way that the reader gets the fact that they're unreliable and can spot what they're really saying underneath what they 
appear to be so, and so on. It's it, you've got all those difficulties, which are which are you know not insuperable, and you can deal with them, and they're quite fun to to, to, to play with. I just prefer to be the voice that can flit from character to character, can look at them from the outside and criticise them, can speak of them warmly and with approbation, can look ahead in the future, can look back at the past, can do all those things. It's a voice that is, well, I call it a sprite, really, that can go anywhere and do anything and see all sorts of things. But a sprite that's not human, because after all, when you look into one person's mind, you're doing something that nobody else can actually do. And if you look into several people's minds, you're doing something that no human being has ever been able to do or ever will be able to do. So the voice that's telling a story that does that cannot be a human voice. It must be the voice of some other some other being, some other, like a sprite. Yeah, It's curious how through literary convention we often kind of, when we're being told something by a sprite, we forget we're being told by a sprite. You know, it, it seems more yeah. nearly transparent than something that, that might be. And you're very keen on oh, transparency. There are all sorts of... All sorts of curious transactions going on intellectually and mentally and imaginatively when, when, we, when we read and when we write. Something that struck me as unexpected in this Demon Voices is in a number of the essays, you're very keen on saying, you know, get the hell out of the way of the reader. The writing shouldn't draw attention to itself. You're telling the story first. And yet then right near the beginning of the book, you've got this, I think, brilliant reading of oh, it's the famous Manet of the Folie Bergère, yeah. in which you make... A resounding case for modernism and self-consciousness and, you know, looking at the paint and, you know, foregrounding yeah. the paradox, the transaction. Exactly. I don't pretend to be consistent. <laughs> I find that an interesting way of looking at that painting. And it's, in fact, it's, it's a very good example of, as you put it, modernism and the foregrounding of technique and, the, and the, what the brush is doing is distinct from what the picture is apparently depicting. It's, it's very interesting. And of course, that was happening throughout all the arts in that period from about well the founding document of modernism is sometimes given as Baudelaire Le Fleur du Mal in 1857 and you can see that a lot of things came out of that but certainly around the turn of that century um, and in in France in Paris so many things were going on of such passionately exciting nature not only in the visual arts you had the impressionists and the post-impressionists and you had the cubism and, the, and, and Picasso and Braque and so on such a period of excitement. You had everything that was going on in the field of literature and you had music as well. You had the um, first night of the first performance of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, 1913, I think it was. There was Debussy, there was Wagner, there were all sorts of stuff. What an interesting period. And of course, modernism. I'm sort of not consistent at this point because I love modernism and I love what it was doing. But the trouble comes when, well, I'm a storyteller, fundamentally. I, I tell stories and I, I want to tell stories that don't distract the reader, but by being pleased with their own cleverness. I mean, I love, I love Nabokov. I think he's a wonderful writer. But I also love Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a great storyteller. I greatly enjoy the novels of Lee Child, who was a splendid storyteller. I read a lot of thrillers. The more skillfully they tell the stories, the more I enjoy them. But they're not literature in that sense, because it's not the surface of the surface of the telling that matters so much. Well, I think we're just about out of time, but Philip Pullman, thank you very much indeed for yours. And La Belle Sauvage and Demon Voices are out now. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs>